give you because you can oh, use yeah, it any way yeah. you like. Was it since they were born? The, the standing joke at dinner used to be now, girls, I don't mind who you bring home, and I'd like to meet them, <laughs> but whatever you do, never bring home a musician. <laughs> <laughs> to Maker and Creator, the podcast about creativity and culture and how it affects us. My name is Jai Smith, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Alex Adams, also known as Miss Darlinghurst. Hi, Jai. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Do you know what episode number this is? Number five? Six? I don't know. I didn't write it down. I, I didn't write it down, down either. I'm not sure. They're just flying by. I'm excited about this episode, though. It's very good. Yeah. Don't, don't be excited. Really. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe I should um, lower my expectations yeah. so you wow That's me right. more. Thank you very much. <laughs> so today we are joined from somebody who I've known for most of my life, I realised, who I met when I was incredibly young on an island in Fiji, believe it or not, <laughs> in a coconut throwing competition to impress your daughter. Wow, um, that, that like is, that's that, amazing. That is by the wayside. Um, we are with Peter Ricks, who is not only the founder of the ARIA Awards, but I've actually read a comment that you were considered the godfather of events and experiences. <laughs> oh, dearie me. I think it's much more fun to talk about Fiji and coconut throwing and you chasing my children around the island. Yeah. Um, so when I was looking at this, you know, Alex and I, Alex is a keen ukulele player. You uh, might be. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, kind of a big deal in the ukulele big, yeah. circles, right? Mm-hmm. Are you a George Formby fan? I don't know who that is. <laughs> there you go. So you've been involved with the music industry for most of your life, correct? Uh, all of it, pretty all much. Of it. And, sort and of, yeah. where did this begin? Like, where did you even find a fascination with music? Uh, uh, I tell stories that I shouldn't because there are people who may or may not be listening to this from my childhood. <laughs> But Spill the I, beans. I, I, Give us the dirt. I, I was the school captain of Nawi Boys High, mm-hmm. and I had a joyous school life. And um, in the last two years, um, when um, I managed to convince the headmaster of the school that we should have not one school dance a year, but three, because there were, in those days there were three terms. And then I then convinced him to write a letter to each of the headmistresses of the, of the girls' schools that existed in the 20-kilometre radius of the high school. And, and we, in my best uniform, along with a couple of my friends, mates, we then fronted these headmistresses. And the end result, after I'd gone to town and booked a band out of the seediest nightclubs I could find, that, but that at least had some sort of minor hit, and in those days I think it was about 40 bucks for the band, and the parents played with the with the uh, the bouncers and the, pre- <laughs> the prefects had the ice the uh, orange juice franchise and, <laughs> and Jai, we had the world's best school dancers because there were there were 80 boys in that year those two senior years wow. and 300 women <laughs> <laughs> so you started the the boy girl dance between no, private like school a, boys or maybe not. so but then I headed off to uni and and to pay for uni, I had a job, but to pay for uni every weekend and I used to love it. I used to go and run suburban dances. And so, then I ended up, sorry, the last piece of the yeah. puzzle was that along the way I bumped into musicians and whatever and then I, one of them um, needed a lift with his drum kit to a, a, a job that he was going to play in the Maccabean Hall in Victoria Street in Darlinghurst, just down the road, yeah. the old mm. Jewish hall. And, and he'd car had broken down. So I went and picked him up. We drove there and, and I, he put his drums on the stage and I'm sitting at the back of the room thinking, no one's here. <laughs> this little nice new town sort of man with a bow tie and one eye. Bill, <laughs> Billy Robinson was running it. Some sort of hipster pirate. <clears throat> and, it's, and at 8 o'clock the doors opened and a thousand uh, in the modern era gay men and women wow. came yeah. thundering into that room carrying their eskies, and until 3 o'clock in the morning, it was the biggest dance party in Sydney. And I'm looking at the, at the Newtown sort of semi-criminal bill that paid the police <laughs> off to run it because it was in totally illegal. Yeah. 
I said, mate, you know, you need some, you need some entertainment here. So th- I'm so old. I'm so, I was 18, 19. So the next thing I'm, I'm getting John Farnham to come and play at, his, at this gay party and wow. the Zoot and Colleen Hewitt and all this long before I ever really got into the business. Really? And but I, I you know, it was, it was Friday nights and I made enough money out of that to pay my university and. So were you into the music or were you into the event side of things? It's really you know, there's no there's no division line. The, but were you a musician growing music, up? No, 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 no. I, I, my father loved music. There was a stereo. We had records and play things, and I'd turn the lights off, and everybody else went to bed and get me my uh, my uh, tennis racket and practice being a beetle. <laughs> um, <clears throat> no, the uh, it was a, it, it, my my journey was about music, and then out yeah. of the back of that, it evolved. But if you want to, if you if you're going to be a manager of a band, one of those great lessons to learn very quickly is is what you really are is the is the general manager of a little business yeah. in which there's nobody else to do the marketing, there's nobody else to do the art. I mean, the band will contribute, but essentially somebody's got to do the work. Yep. And so the cross the cross skills that you learn pretty quickly close your eyes. It, you could be in any other business. The truth is, um, as I grew up. Just a time when I didn't want to be on the road anymore. Yeah. So from 22, I suppose, till because one of the, the band, the first thing I managed was Hush, and they were they were a resident band for a while at this, this club, this gay club called the Aquarius Club. Yeah. Only ran on a Friday night. It's interesting you talk about you know the gay party scene back in when was that? So was that like the 80s or no no that was the that was 1971. 70s. Okay, it so it's totally that- illegal. Illegal um, gay dance parties in the seventies, and the gay dance party scene to this day is way more entertaining and fun than I think the straight dancing. I love going to all the Mardi Gras parties, and you know you go to Ark Mm. on a a Saturday night; it's the only place you can actually get some good dancing. Yeah, any night really. Um, I mean, what do they know that we don't know? Like, what? What's there? They're uninhibited. Um, They don't really care what people think. They're not worried about what the person next to them looks like. They've got a much better sense of value of yeah. of, uh, of uh, humanity in the in the main. And there's the, you know they there are the the games that get played between uh, young gay men and old gay men is is a classic moment of in in real life these days you probably get arrested. But in the, <laughs> in, in those days it was that they just you know you. Yeah, I've got to be careful here because when you turn the lights off on those sort of nights, and I don't, if you've ever been at, at a straight party at the end of the night, it's just everybody's so off their face, no one knows what's going on. <laughs> in, in those days, you turn when you turn the lights on, yeah, it was pretty sad because they had to they they it, what they were doing those functions were were they could be arrested. Yeah, yeah, the, that that was a and it's crazy that it was only you know. However many years ago, like it's in your lifetime and you remember it very clearly. It's Well, they're educated, you know, that's how I grew up. That's how I learned how to do what I ended up becoming yeah. reasonably good at was was out of those sort of times. You don't learn much out of now. But no. and, and is that an understanding of people and what they want versus just events and how they function? I, I, you, you put yourself right in the middle of my world with that. Because right. the answer for me was always that you sit at the back of the room. I don't want to be famous. I want to go on the stage. I'm, yeah. I'm happy not to be on the stage. But if you look at that audience, you'll know whether or not you're doing a good job. Yeah. It's no use looking at the band. The band the band have no idea. They're going to do what they do and hope to God that it goes off. But there's always going to be 20 rows that are going to go off whatever happens. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's whether or not they've hit the back row, whether they've touched it. So, looking at music then versus music today, do you try, do you try and stay current with music today? Because mm-hmm. even for me right now, I came back from Hong Kong and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. Like, I flip through stations and I'm like, I don't understand half of this anymore. I don't, I don't believe in radio anymore. Yeah. So <laughs> that's probably clear, clearly. And but why? Because they don't play anything that that has any adventure. They play what the demographic, what their research says they've got to play to keep the advertising. What was it like when, in the good old days, I guess, that you remember? I used to walk in the front door of USM with my new single, the band single, Marsha's single, whatever it might have been, 
and you'd go to visit somebody that you knew who'd been at, at a gig a week beforehand. And yeah. So, and you'd you'd hand it over and you'd you'd sort of have that look of and and if they liked you and they'd play it. <laughs> oh, interesting. And then And they would you, actually come to gigs and they would listen yeah. to yeah. new people. Yeah. I think that was no, the thing no, I was no, stuck yeah. on. I'm like, oh you mean radio people actually went to gigs? No, like, oh, they were they were at gigs yeah. everywhere you went. But remember, this was this was the seventies, so the biggest influence was Radio to start with, mm. they they broke it, and they had a relationship. So that they knew that if they had an audience of people that that they were impacting and who wanted to go to things, then they'd be successful. Um, whereas the only criteria now for modern commercial radio is that people that advertisers are buying spots, and it's the advertiser who does the, the research, not the radio station. Right. So you you had just fantastic relationship. Like if they didn't play 20% local content, um, then the radio station would would not get its audience because every band was out every night of the week playing somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. It was wonderful times. So was Hush your first biggest band that you were really in charge of managing? Or? Mm. Yep. Yeah, no, they were the, that and, was the first thing I ever did. And and how did you evolve? Like you'd never done anything that like that beforehand like how did they pick you up how did that evolve like they were um they were a, they were a band that played at this joint the aquarius club on mm. a friday night i used to book them i the, the the audiences loved them uh and one day in a break at the back one, one of them came to me and said oh We've been offered a record contract, and you're the only person we know that knows anything about the law. <laughs> <laughs> the law in general. <laughs> well, no, for a contract. You know, can you? Could you help us out? And so I, happily, and with without, it was ne- never about money. I yeah. wandered up to the what was called the brick pit at our time, and where Warner Brothers were, and and um, did this little deal. And they were they at the same time were going to release a. The next album from from Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs. Wow. Those of you old enough to remember, and the album was called More Ass Than Class. Yeah, and they'd spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on this really? record for Billy, and here's this little band called Hush. It was a pop group that spent every weekend playing suburban dances, and that they we made we spent fifteen thousand dollars on a record called Aloud and Live in a small recording studio called United Sound. And that album gets released and sells more copies than Billy Thorpe's. <laughs> and so suddenly the band sitting in my lounge room one day saying, well, uh, what, what do you reckon we should do now? And uh, and I, you became a manager. Well, I, no, I looked at them and said, well, you're going to have to give up your day jobs and <laughs> get a little Ford Transit van, go to Melbourne. Really? Because uh, you can't just sit here and do it if you, wanna, if you actually want to break. Because Melbourne was the big music centre in Australia. Oh, yeah, right? absolutely. So... They they all had a little huddle in the corner and turned around and said, "Well, we'll give up our day, day jobs if you give up yours." <gasps> so my mother didn't speak to me for about three years after that. But <laughs> but I ended up in the what back was of your day job at the yeah. time? <laughs> well, I was at university, oh. and at the same time, I had a day job working for for I think at those days in those days Angus and Robinson. Yeah, right. So it, but it was like as a as a sort of like a. Executive, like a, a trainee executive. You know, yeah. You're 21. You just <laughs> those days it was easy to get a job, um, but really the plan was to be a lawyer. I failed dismally at it. <laughs> so I'm in the back of the Ford Transit van to Melbourne. Yeah. And yeah, oh, when you're 21 or 22, pain. You you just have a go. Yeah, don't you, you do and, you want. and it was. Can always get another job at Angus and Robertson. <laughs> I could. <laughs> I could go back and yeah. finish the law degree. Um, so that that started it, and um, you know, there's hideous numbers of stories about who you, you know, Michael Chug. I met that <laughs> that first week we were in Melbourne. He was managing the Lardy Dars, another <laughs> band half the world's not heard of, but at the time were big. And big so he's yeah, chugging and hacking this, hacking that. He and I ended up sharing an office in McMahon's Point, and he had Stevie Wright, and by then I had Marsha, and and the the band in the end, the band you know, great. How um, did Marsha Hines find you, or you found her? Like what? That is a that is a big yeah. Tell us how did that like. happen? Uh, she had arrived here at sixteen for dear Harry, who just passed away, Harry Miller, uh, and he in to be in hair. Had the hair season finished, he offered her a job in Jesus Christ Superstar, 
uh, as Mary Magdalene. She, in the meantime, had been made an offer by a, a big brass, brassy band called the Daily Wilson Big Band, who had a big, a big uh, national contract with Rothman Cigarettes. There are the days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, the band that was the pit orchestra for Jesus Christ Superstar um, was called Baxter Funt. You know, I'm telling terrible stories. I hope this doesn't go forever. And <laughs> and back and so there's another legendary character who worked for the ABC called Bernie Cannon, who who ran a television program that ran every week for 15 minutes on the ABC at 6:45 called GTK. <laughs> GTK meaning Get to Know You, which was a music show. Okay. And he was given he he had proposed to the ABC and they'd agreed to have a show called the Rock and Roll Ballroom of the Year. So they took over. Um, Paddington Town Hall, and booked Hush for one of the shows, one of the episodes. Hush were big. Hush had had hits by then. Right. And they and they were young and brash and had glittery outfits. And, <laughs> and so we we turn up. Um, I turn up and, the in those days, the record company guy comes and uh, Tony Hogarth and the radio guy, Trevor Smith, turns up and Michael Chug, the promoter, turns up because we're all working together. We're all yeah. mates. And sit down at one of these little cafe tables. The band are out the back getting ready to, to come on and uh, um, John English gets up as the MC. Oh, wow, oh. really? And you, and you weren't working with him by then? No, no, I, but I'd grown up with him because we right. used to play basketball together at high school. Oh. Wow. So he'd, he'd been over having a chat then he got up and he, he, he was the <laughs> MC and he said, fucking, you wait, wait till you see this girl sing. <laughs> and, and Baxter Funt, who were the, 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 uh, the superstar band, Turns out they were doing because Superstar was on by then, right. mm. and they were on Sunday nights doing a residency at a nightclub down in in uh, East Sydney called Jules. Yep. Um, and Marsha would get up and sing with the band and get paid a, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks. So somehow they're booked backs to front, and Marsha's going to get up and sing. So English introduces his co-star from Superstar. She gets up and sings Fire and Rain, mm. and the, the boys, you know, the four of us are up the back going. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think the deal was, Rixie, you, you, you see if you can manage her because if you can manage her, I'll record her and the, and the radio <laughs> guy says, and I'll play the record and Chuggy says, and I'll promote the tour. Wow. So out we went out the back and I, I looked her up and down. She'd finished because at that stage she's chatting away to the, the hushes. Yeah. She's a, she's a nice bird. I walked over and said, hello, if you ever need a manager. <laughs> <laughs> was I'm that a, your line? I'm, Hi, I was. I'm Peter it, it was. <laughs> no, it was just, if you need, and, and, and by the way, I'm available. <laughs> and she looked me up and down and said, do you have a car? <laughs> and at the time I went, yeah, of course I've got a car. She said, I'll be in touch. <laughs> All she wanted was someone to drive to the train for the gig. <laughs> wow. <gasps> that was a long time ago, yeah. 40, 40, 45 years ago. Really? What mm. a journey. What a story. Yeah. Like, it's just not like, because they're all the names that we hear, but even our, our parents know that we know just, and it's just incredible to know how it all really started. Because by the time we see these people, it's just like, oh, well, that, they're a superstar. That's how these things happen. So, whatever happened on that way, we never get to see. Yeah. But you, you, um, you will learn out of the people that you do know, because the journeys are the same. It's just in different eras. The, the, yeah. the difficulty that everyone's got these days is that nothing about it's ever really exotic. There's pro uh, social media and, and the amount of, of ability, the ability of people to become famous without being talented mm. means it's very hard to yeah. figure out whether someone's – like Marsh is a great singer um, and some of those bands from those eras. And, and you know, Midnight Oil, Chisel – the gurus, they, they're great. That competed, they can compete anywhere. Yeah. But it's harder now to, to be there because it, it is about serendipity. If you're there at the right time, the right place, you'll, <coughs> you'll roll it forward. And I spent years believing I was the luckiest guy on the planet. That I had all these wonderful people that I looked after that were talented and I was just along for the ride. Well, that's it. Do you think now, and Alex and I talk about, we, we naturally end up talking a lot about social media and I am 
always of two minds. And like, obviously the bands that I loved growing up were like early nineties. And so for me, I kind of knew their stories and they, they were, they were the silver chairs of the world. They were the, you know, it, 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 I obviously was a huge fan of bands like Metallica, but I kind of understood that story. And then there was these new bands, but do you think now, like, you know, post 2000 and even 15, let alone 2010, do you think now that we're kind of more aware and there's a more general awareness of, yeah, these things aren't really just how good you are. They're more on how serendipitous those occasions are. But we never saw that before. Or is it because we're like, oh, well, everything's manufactured because market research and data tells us that these things are popular? Oh, look, I think that's only radio and, and television. I don't think it's true about the music. I think people people make music because they, they want to and because they're, they're passionate about it. But the, um, you know, if I had it all over again, I was back 22, I'd, I'd do exactly the same thing again. I just, it's just a different way to do it now. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's that, that, that's that, a great answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's just answering the question. I, and I think that's, yeah, that's what I mean. It's kind of like, well, nothing's changed. We see a bit more. Yeah, you've got you've got more broader. Look, the biggest the biggest change is that if you, I would take. I wasn't the only one. We all did it. Um, you you'd take the masters of the albums. You'd you'd try from Sydney to to get appointments with American A and R guys because it, yeah. Australian record companies had absolutely no power over there at all. But they they'd want to sign you for the world, but they couldn't get a release for you. Life depended on it. So you'd, you'd find a way to get your tapes and take them over there to convince people. So you'd have everything you possibly could to, to convince someone that they should sign your act. And, and no, no, it was the, it was the music that they, they wanted to hear. But you could sit in a hotel room in New York, New York for three weeks and wait for the telephone to ring. Really? Long before, um, before mobile phones and such. Now, in, in, you don't need to leave town. Just get it on YouTube and, and broadcast it to the world and make sure you've got a social social following and somebody in some other part of the world is going to listen to that and go, I like this. Yeah. Now, that's a, that's an extraordinary advantage. I mean, a band, uh, someone like Flume. Yeah. Mm, how, yeah. How, how amazingly successful is that man? The and yet he did it all. In, and he yeah. did it all. Did all his front room. Um, but no, the opportunities are there. Um, it's always the regret if if you see somebody else skyrocket and you weren't there to be a part of it. Yeah. So in that sense, the process is exactly the same. Just the the method in which that happens, or the mediums in which that happens, have changed. Yeah, you've got it. Uh, you know, ask you, anyone who wants to be a part of it or has to ask themselves the first question is how relentless are you? Yeah. And are you are you actually doing this for the money? If you're doing it for the money, fuck off. Yeah. Because it, it'll be years before you make it. And if you do make it. The week after, then you're the luckiest person in town. And now that, but the relentless is what has to happen because it's not an it's not about day one. It's yeah. about how 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 long you're willing to go through that process until eventually you un, you you turn up the golden dish. You've worked with so many successful artists over the years. What do you think is something they all have in common? Like, what are the yeah. main drivers? What are the main motivators behind their creativity and what they do? Do you think? Um, I, I think every one of them has a different story to tell, but if there's an overarching theme, it is that they're all made of tensile steel. Wow. Yeah. The, the, uh, the, it doesn't mean that the great creatives are all that strong. Mm. Yeah. Um, there are some of them that are deeply fragile, but they, they're not going to survive for long times, when if they if they had that fragility, they'll doesn't mean that it's they're going to fail. That's the other great problem is no one should judge failure by whether or not you've had it. Yeah, right. it's, it's it's whether or not artistically you're able. The first thing is you've got to be able to survive. A great manager, mm-hmm. all great managers have to work out what it is that gives the people that they want to look after to be managed. They've got to work out what what gives those people confidence in, the, in themselves, right? And in the, you, you, and everybody has a different touch point. Yeah. Some people need rent, they need food. Others need self-aggrandizement. They need to know that they're loved. Mm. There's a hundred different things that go on, and that 
to your question is um, in the the, the, the the thing that that carries them is their strength of will. Yeah. Wow. And that fragility, I guess, can come in a number of different shapes and forms. Like we've seen so many young artists who have crumbled under the pressure and, you know, taken their own lives or, um, you know, fall victim to drugs and alcohol. And and, and do you think at, at what point, like I remember watching the Amy Winehouse documentary, for instance, at what point, how far do you go as a manager, I guess? Like you, I think you mentioned um, earlier that, uh, it, it's like a marriage without the sex being a manager. Like, how far Thank do God. you? <laughs> how far do you go as a manager? Do you think? Uh, I think to raise Amy Winehouse is to see the 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 depth of trauma that arrives when people are not really understanding and providing support. What yeah. they're doing there. If you're there for yourself and not there for the, it's a collaboration. Yeah, got, which sounds it, like it, it was, you know, everyone was out for themselves and yeah, no one really had a best like, interest that, at that, heart. That, that doco is like, for someone like me, yeah. it's just shocking. It would break your heart, right? Yeah, yeah, you yeah, think, because oh, I because you, you, you know, you're not, you can't keep making decisions that say, oh, well, you've got to go out to work now. Because if you go out to work, then we all make enough money to pay the bills and keep the drugs running, whatever. That's not criteria for great management no i think she just kind of caught at the end of it well you hear about a lot of artists who you know they the green-eyed monster like they get so caught up in the money and they do change have you in your experience seen many managers because you know managers if your talent if your artist is getting rich you're getting rich as well right so have you ever seen like managers out there in the field who have just become greedy and at the cost of their their artist you know I, I really haven't that often, but I—that's great I, to hear. I I um I think there are opportunists mm. who turn up. I think it's mainly around pop because that's yeah. that is genuinely manufactured. I mean, I I, I would not ever suppose to get between a, a a good inventive, creative human being in the music business and and not allow them to tell me what it is they wanted to do. Um, I might have an opinion about it and mm. I might want to have a, a, dis, a fervent and arresting discussion, mm. but the, I don't know how to do that packaged pop that, mm-hmm. that, that has existed for a long time. So, you know, a band like Take That um, or, or um, you know, the Simon Cowell things that yeah. come out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, or, or Or those Backstreet Boys things that came out of America. Yeah. Out of that, out of Miami or Orlando, where they were, where they'd have rehearsal studios, where they'd bring boys together and work out and try and work out the best. Chem- yeah, chemistry. that's right. And the, and the dance routines, and then put them, put the record out, and it'd work. Yeah. And then K-pop arrived, and you just sit there shaking your head, going, "This is it's it's such an industry." So the the journey of music is in that regard has grown exponentially. Whereas you know, I'm the guy who, when I was twelve, listened to the Beatles. And God, and it changed changed my life, but it it changed the society I lived in at the same time, and that's not what happens anymore. I know it's amazing that you can have music um, that can change you and have such an impact. I mean, there's are, are there many bands today that you think of? Oh, I don't think music's anywhere near as relevant as it yeah, used to be. Yeah, having such an impact. So this this is where I come at heads because. I agree. Like I think, like music is one of those most profound things which changes people. And I think the thing for me was because, and I think you know, prior to this, everyone was thinking, yeah, but what about the voice? What about fucking Australian American art or whatever? And I think, I think the hard thing is, I could never take away. So if I met somebody today who was twelve or thirteen, who'd heard a song, and he or she doesn't know where it's from, and like this had a profound impact on me. I'm like, I will never take that impact away from you. But I think the thing that I'm always like, I'm like, the bands I grew up listening to were like dirty heavy metal bands discovered in the corners of because somebody realized that whether it was Nirvana, Korn, you know, uh, uh, all, all these kind of like sideways bands that were like very anti-mainstream, like, oh, that was going to be a thing. That was going to be a cultural revolution, which I think which which is what you're talking to. The Beatles weren't only a profound impact on individuals. They had a profound impact on they have long hair. And I was listening to a great uh, podcast today. He said, like, 
Yeah, the Beatles had long hair, but they turned up to every event in a suit. <laughs> like, you know, at the time, they were seen as very left of centre, very, you know, breaking the rules. But, like, they turned up to every event in a suit. Their whole thing was they had long hair. You fast forward 10 years to looking at Ozzy Osbourne, everyone's like, oh, well, you know, that's a lot of black makeup and their guitars are turned up to, you know, d- distorted 11, etc. So that was a different break of the genre. Fast forward, we kind of live in this post kind of this this post music era where there's nothing left to shock us anymore. You mm. you you don't have the legacy and the heritage musically. So the images are one thing, but the music <clears throat> in the case of some of the people you're talking about will long outlast their life. Um and that that's some of the music that's created now will do the same thing, but you and I aren't going to know what it is. Yeah. So I, I philosophically I I I I have a view of contemporary music um, and its evolution that uh, I it's boring, but I believe when the when in the thirties and the forties mm. there was what really was big band music, mm-hmm. and Har- there were Duke Ellington, Harry James, who ran these amazing musically amazing things, but it was entirely rhythmic. Mm. The whole the whole of what what Came out of the out of that performance or out of the record when they when they were in those days recording on seventy eight RPM discs was was melody. You know, people people literally lived off a profound level of like it was the good time music that came out of the back of the war. Bill Haley arrived and added a thing called skiffle. Which was this middle ground? If you think about six, uh, whatever it is, one, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Yeah, right. Like, like, which which was a, had been around a long time, but it it had come really out of musicals. But this was this was <clears> the correct me if I'm wrong. This was the white take yeah. on predominantly black music. Correct. Which came out of big band. You're swinging beats. You're swinging notes, <clears> and then. I never knew it was called skiffle, but it was literally it was literally almost that yeah. uh, normalization of. It doesn't have to be this far swung to be Motown, Big Band, yeah. Concert Hall. So if you think about that music that you're now talking about, it 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 was slowly gaining a beat again, yeah. as against just straight rhythm. And then lo and behold, the Beatles and the Liverpool sound and the Rolling Stones arrived. And here before your eyes, because it wasn't Elvis Presley at all. Elvis Presley was so... Influenced by black music, that what mm. he was was the great pop singer of his era, and and to this day, an enormous legacy. But but I never saw him as a musical influence on, on at all. No, he was a he just was I mean, in the end. He was a great big Las Vegas cabaret actor. Well, he was a, he was a celebrity. He yeah. he was I wouldn't say fashion icon, but I know what you're saying. No, no. He was an Im- he was yeah. the first image icon. So. So the Beatles arrive, and um, if you see if you see this journey of the graph, it's that suddenly the Beatles arrive. They're playing their own instruments. They're writing their own songs, <laughs> but because of because they are they are by then because the, the history of that band and the Rolling mm. Stones is they would get the 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 music off the seamen that arrived in Liverpool, yeah, off the ships, off the off the freighters from America, and they'd have these muddy waters. Uh, that that sort of music. So they merged those two things together. BB King. Um, there's a there's a raft of them at all. So suddenly, what had been melody only, and then it become a little bit of suddenly it became virtually rhythm and blues. So you you had you had a you had a melody line. You had a, a chorus, but you had you had more than a backbeat. They were on. They were right on the t- and that that stayed there. I think for 25. years. Yeah, well, it was the first time musicians had broken down things into their four principles. So the I think when people and if somebody didn't drag me through it at eight years old to listen to romance and classical, I wouldn't have cared. But when you suddenly realise that music went from pure melody and pure movement to hey, there's four major movements there, which today everyone will call well, there's a beat, there's a bass line, there's a melody, and there's a vocal line. Mm. And then you break down any, everything from every EDM artist just left me and I'm thinking of Calvin Harris. Yeah. Like you can break that down into that and everyone's like, yeah, well, that's how it happened. Like I'm like, and this is where my whole thing about, yeah, look, I don't, I'm not a big fan of the Beatles, but I love what they did. 
and that and that's a big leap that I don't think people make is when you know when I visited New Orleans and I went back and I went to a real jazz hall and I th- thought I understood jazz I'm like I've been taught jazz I understand it and then going and seeing it for real and seeing it live I'm like if no one's ever heard this live, then I don't believe anyone's ever really heard it. You see, you mean traditional jazz, yeah. don't you? Yeah. Because you went from traditional jazz to what essentially became rock and roll, you know, and what white people call rock and roll today. So keep going because there you've got this this idiom that is really, in a sense, R&B, but it's, it's got this merge of choruses, yeah. rhythm, yeah. but it's also got a degree of swing it's all it, it all merges together into this into this idiom that stayed there for a very long time and whether it's whether it was pantera or whether <laughs> it was it was metallica or whether it was dear old Ozzy Osbourne they they still lived inside that that level of tradition because yeah. the, the, in the end there was a chorus there was a verse and there was a band and there was a drummer and a bass player playing the living crap out of it and that includes Motown and the Philadelphia things. Now, what's, what then evolved and where, where life now is, is it's gone to the very edge of the, and it, and some, the new things I'm waiting to see what happens because now it's, it's quintessentially rhythmic but there's no melody anymore. Mm. So the, 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 the music that evolves these days has, when they want commercial success, they have to put some rhythm into it. So... You, whether it's Calvin Harris or David Guetta or any of those, th- those guys have have worked out they've got to compromise. They can't be they can't be playing house music if they actually want to have a hit. Yeah. But whether it's them or whether it's Eminem or a- any any of that Jay Z, they, they've taken it's become poetry with a with a backbeat attached to it. So that that length of journey of of the music business doesn't mean for a minute that nobody that people aren't interested, but they're not. They're not collecting it the same way. Yeah. So they they discard it when they're finished, and they move to the next piece of the puzzle. And the and the industry's created been created around it all. So you you don't need to own a record collection anymore, Jai. No. You, you've you've got it on your computer, and when you're finished with that piece, you can throw it away and get another one. Or just keep it and keep going. It sounds like from what you're saying that you believe that icons will come and go, but the music will last forever. You, you absolutely, and and the great the great the the great creatives will survive it all because that essentially it's an art form. The, the music, great music, is an art form, and and not not to be. What's the only great? You know, I used to say this too often once. Is aren't you lucky? Because most most great artists have to die before anybody pays pays for, the, yeah. for the, their art. In in the music business, you're on the bloody radio making money from day one, and you're in a concert hall, and there's people buying tickets to see your show, and and you're able to say you're you're an art, you're in the art business. It's just what what sort of business really is it? And with it comes the dangers that we're managers and agents and promoters get in the way of of uh, the purity of art. Peter, I want to know about the Arias. Oh, yeah, we need to get to the Arias. Well, let's, get, let's get stuck in this. You're one of the founders of the Arias. You are the founder You're of the You're the founder Arias. of the Arias. How did this come about? Uh, Countdown, which we haven't talked about, but which was a great part of, enormous part of the success of these people that I managed through the 70s and the early 80s. So I know about Countdown, but for people who don't know what Countdown is, can you explain? Well, Countdown was an ABC television uh, weekly television show that that was broadcast at six o'clock on a Sunday night, and if you, and it was national, so you could be in in Darwin, and unlike any other television show you might appear on uh, as a performer, suddenly you were you could be anywhere in Australia, and, and it was because live. the ABC, and it was live. Yeah. Uh, actually, no, I lie. It wasn't live. No. We we re- it was recorded on Saturday afternoons in the, the ABC studios in Elston Week. So was it kind of like the nineties visual today's version of Rage? Almost like you wake up every Saturday morning and there's Rage. No, it no, was- no. It was far more. It was far more significant. So the whole family at six o'clock at night would sit there. Mum and dad and the kids would all sit there, and they would they would see uh, Deary and Meldrum 
mumbling his way and they and would Mark Holden was he the is it Mark Holden who Well, was I the... managed Mark Holden's role. No. Okay, he was the host. No, no. Right? No. No, no. Every every test No, 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 that's a different thing. No, there, there was no host. Every week uh, uh, one of the uh, one of the the recording stars, pop yeah. stars. So John Paul Young would do it a lot. Marsha did it. Mark Holden did it. Okay. But, but hundreds of people did it. And James Rain even did it, right? Yeah. But then through that through that show there was a live studio audience. And um, so this is hey hey it's Saturday. No, this is <laughs> no. I feel like everything we're trying to throw at it isn't doing it justice. Um, Keep going. So, so if you were if you were a recording act that wanted commercial success, and there were very few that didn't. So even Colchester ended up doing it. Midnight Oil never did it. But you, um, what? Because what would then happen is you'd go on to Countdown, you'd sing this, you'd perform the song, mime it. Half could do the vocals, do me, and the next weekend, the next week on the Friday, your, your record would be in the chart. Wow! But but more to the point, you'd then go and play. You know, you'd do a country tour, and you'd end up in Bundaberg in Queensland. Yeah, and like it'd be Wednesday night, and six hundred screaming twelve-year-old, fifteen-year-old girls would be there because they'd seen you on Countdown the week before. It it was the enormously good like the, it, the exposure that you got because it didn't if if you if if radio played the song in Sydney but it didn't play it in Melbourne then Sydney knew all about you but Melbourne didn't yeah, yeah. if you and and commercial television and radio was in pockets so was this the only com- uh, nationwide commercial music show at the time. Oh, no. Well, not really. Channel 7 had a guy called Donnie Sutherland who was okay. a former <laughs> yeah. jockey. Yep. Did Donnie who had a show on Saturday mornings called Sounds Unlimited. Yeah, and yeah. that ran from like 8 o'clock in the morning till midday and we all ended up on that looking pretty bleary-eyed. <laughs> was Triple J around? <laughs> no. It hadn't launched yet. It hadn't launched okay. yet. Is it? Uh, but, but Triple J became a major platform for – Particularly, you know, you talk about Silverchair and bands like that. That's that's where they came from. And a countdown was a, a key part of it all. So the the Ari Awards started because each year I, I had in, I had ended up being um, <clears throat> uh, on behalf of some of my acts. We built a little record label called Midnight Records, which is really only so that I could keep ownership of the copyright of the songs they the music they recorded for themselves. Okay. So therefore, Marsha John, a lot of these guys. All, all had their product distributed through Midnight, which then I would do a distribution deal for them. But they would then get to own it. So if you did a, if you were signed to, right. to if you were signed to Warner Brothers, they'd then own. they they'd own it. They owned your lyrics. They owned your songs. They yeah. owned everything. No, they, they owned, copyright they, law for music was a mess at this time. Still, still the same. Yeah, Nothing's yeah, changed. Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't mean yeah. it's a mess. It's just if you're if you're a lawyer now, you know all about it. Yeah. If you're in a band, you're sitting there going, "What's this all mean?" Yeah. yeah. So no, the um, the 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 main th- thing, and it's where, where someone like Michael Gudinski and Mushroom was so so significant to the local business was Michael had a great love of it, so he would. This is Mushroom Records. Yeah, mm. so he yep. his deals were far more that you know he might have the might have the license, what they call a license for the product for five six years whatever, but as long as what he'd paid for the record got paid back at the end of that period of time, you got to walk away with the record. And, that was the, and that's what people think of, you know, certainly from when we grew up. It's like, oh, yeah, you, you got a loan for what you were doing and then everything plus was, was yours, mm. which is not the case anymore. No. So, but, but again, the cost of recording is so much less. So yeah. countdown, <laughs> countdown once a year would have a, um, an, a, the Countdown Awards, very big. And the year, each year we'd all go, the industry would go, we'd all have to wear black tie, we'd all sit down and go, because <laughs> it was really a pop show, and yeah. it was whoever yeah, show, they yeah. they wanted to be there. And we're thinking we're far more serious than this. Really, this is not very good. But not denying that it was a great thing to help ex- expose your band. So there's a year, there's one year we're all sitting there. I'm in my black tie, and there's a row of music managers and executives, and there's acts and whatever else, and we're all behaving ourselves, and it's live and it's Sunday night. And the the award, the count, these countdown awards for the the best group, you know, the best Australian group, um, were, pretty much came down to two bands. So on one hand, you had In Excess, yeah, who were not global at that stage, 
mm. but were pretty big. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a Melbourne band called the Uncanny X-Men, okay. who you probably never heard of. No. Only through the comic One books. One of those bands. But you, 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 you will look... <laughs> You will look up. You will look up the Uncanny X Men afterwards. They had a they had a very interesting and somewhat charismatic lead singer called Brian Mannix, who's still on yeah, that. yeah. Well, that's oh. Brian, Brian Mannix is the lead singer of the, of the Uncanny X Men, oh. and we're in what they called what was in those days called the Melbourne of I think it was called the Melbourne Event Centre, which was at the old 1956 swimming pool mm. for the Olympic Games that they'd covered over and they'd built. They'd built like sides and then backs and then a flat floor in the middle and the big stage. So it was acoustic, an acoustic nightmare. Yeah. But here, here we all Fucking are, Dunder Atlantis. And Meldrum's on stage <clears throat> and, and, he's a, and he announces <laughs> and now uh, the award, the, the nominees for the best group of the year, you know, here and then uh, the Uncanny X-Men and, and half of one giant side of this building because we're in Melbourne and they were a Melbourne band, yeah. explodes into – Joyous screams and as as they announced they're a nominee, and and then a few more, and then and in excess, and of yep. course the entire wall of uncanny X Men fans boo vociferously for no. in excess, and we're in the middle of it going because like who was the best band here? Right? It was obvious, yeah. yeah. But we're in the middle of fandom, we're yeah. in the middle of the kids. Mm. So <laughs> Meldrum takes out the envelope, opens it up, and says, "And the winner is dramatic pause in excess." Yeah. And Michael and the band get up to head towards the stage and it, it, the camera shot from the left-hand side across Meldrum and, and his microphone goes up to the wall where the um, where the, 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 the fans, fans are. Fans yeah, yeah, yeah. are and they've just unfurled a 30-foot wide banner that's about <gasps> two foot that said, fuck off, pop face. <laughs> <laughs> fuck off what? Because of Michael hadn't. A bit of acting. Oh, pop face. Pop, pop face. P-O-C-K. Oh, my gosh. That's mean. So I'm, wow. si- I'm sitting in the middle of this. I looked at Paul Turner who ran Warner Brothers in those days. Dear, dear Paul. And he looked at him and said, we have to. We, we really have to get out of this. Yeah. So the next ARIA board meeting, because I was on the board of ARIA in those days because of the little record company. Okay, so ARIA was yeah. already a, a group? like Cause, so. Cause no, ARIA is the Australian Record Industry Association. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that – okay, and then the ARIA Awards. So yeah. that was already there. You were part of – Well, I, I was on the – I was a, a small-time um, – like the ARIA – has always been the major record company. So, uh, so who lo- the long biggest- before you were born, there were like seven major record companies. So who were they? That was one of the questions. So I, I, I literally spoke to my boss and I'm like, hey, I'm talking to Peter Riggs tonight. He's like, he's like, just talk through who are the record labels that even warranted an industry association around that? Uh, well, so there was Warner Brothers. Yep. Yeah. There was RCA. Mm-hmm. There was Festival. There was oh, MCA. There was Polygram. Yep. There was... And Mushroom's in that? Mu- Mushroom wasn't a member of ARIA. Michael oh. didn't, didn't want to be a member of ARIA. Um, there was – what's the name of Melbourne? Small in, smaller independent label that – anyhow. The, what's that I can't remember the others. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. I could. I no, should, no, no, it's fine. But I haven't got them all. But they, 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 every, like these days there are two and a half record companies left. So Sony yeah. – well, that's Sony was the other one. Oh, Sony. Yeah. Sony, that's, that's six. Is – Sony gobbled up BMG and BMG. Already? The other? Oh, and Sony oh owns, no, now. Okay, Sony yeah, yeah. now owns all of RCA, BMG, all of that. That's all one record company, which is Sony. Yep. And then, up and then Universal, as it's now called. Okay. Took out everything. So, so that, that Universal are the biggest record company. So now yeah. there's two. But back but then, then there was – But then there's Warner Brothers about. as well, independently on its own. But it's it has none of the level of market share that the other two do. So I went back to the next board meeting and said, "Look, let's do a deal here. Let's run a. I, I'm I'm happy for nothing to run a giant dinner for the industry. And and I I had a little plan, you know, call, like it's called Aria. I said, let's call them the Arias. Yeah. And um, but let's not because I knew how much money the board contributed to the the countdown awards to get them on. And they agreed. So I the deal was, um. For me at the time was that I I promised them it wouldn't cost them any more money, which I succeeded in doing by charging it. N- nobody ever got a free ticket to the Ari Awards, yeah, including <laughs> the record companies. Wow. So but, they all had to buy their own tickets to go, and then off we went. The first year we got Elton John to be the MC. It was oh. at Wentworth Hotel uh-huh. in Sydney, and it was never filmed. Um, 
John Farnham won everything because it was the year of Whispering Jack. No, no, no. So, okay, so this is where I want to dig in. First of all, why why haven't an awards at all? Like, and why you? I was the only one who was independent enough to not be a, a record company guy with a with a major. But why did you think the uh, the record companies needed a fucking award ceremony to celebrate themselves? I never thought it was about the record company. Still don't. So why? What do you think it's about? It's about the about the performers, about the sync, you know. The, so were there about not the, having sore losers call you pock face when you uh, end up winning an award in the, you know, not in the hometown. I'm really sorry for how old was Michael Hutchinson? Fucking like nineteen? No, he's twenty-two. Yeah, so. yeah. But the, the <laughs> I did not do this on my own. So I I formed a thing called the Board of Governors. We used to call it the Bog. Oh, the Governors. The Bog. The Bog. The Bog. Okay. Well, yeah, Board of Governors says very pretentious, but oh, the God. Bog. <laughs> And and I I became the chairman of the bog. So that I, <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna do that. Okay. Yeah. And then I yeah. produced, and every year I produced the awards. Fourteen years I produced the awards. So was that because that, you loved music or you loved the artist? It was my payback. Yeah. My, it was my. I I had a chance to to um to do something that was for no reason other than we did not have a credible uh, an awards. Ceremony or process mm. of any sort that would help those art- artists to sell records. Were there independent labels that needed that? All the record, la- all, all the independent record labels were uh, were, a were a part of it all. Right, there were a, like we had in, an indigenous category. We had independent really? categories. Back then? Oh, in the right, yeah. And we and and the big thing was it was voted for by the industry. Yeah, it was not publicly voted, uh, so. You know, one of those great moments was when Craig McLaughlin won an won an Ari Award because he had a band and he was with Sony. But it was we we obviously had to keep the major record companies happening. So there were two awards. One was for the highest selling album, and one, the other one was for the yeah. highest selling single. So, so that's where the pop guys got it. Yeah, and a, a bit of a personal side. So eighty six was was it definitely a big year? Not only was was uh, you doing the arias, but your your eldest daughter was born. How, what was, was that like for you, like as an individual? Like, because well, uh, I, I the two big events in one year, and our and, and sorry, I only called you aria. Your Ari. face just completely yeah. changed. You, yeah, <laughs> you just got really cute and soft and smiley, and it was nice. Uh, <laughs> I have a uh, again a a philosophical view about myself and my life and I believe it applies to everybody. I've been telling children this forever that we all go through cycles mm. and and if you're unable to ever find a quiet moment to self-evaluate, yeah. um, then you're in a lot of trouble. But those cycles don't come because you force them. Yeah. But you've got to plan it. You've got to be ready to do that thing. So if you think about it, 1988, I'd started touring with bands in 1972. I'd met Marsha, started with Marsha in 1973. So by the time I got to the Ari Awards time, I wasn't just the Aries I was doing. I was running the grand finals for the Rugby League. I was wow. doing the State of Origin. I, I, was, I was in the process of evolving from being a manager. Yeah. To well, what am I? What else can I do? I can't keep going back to the in those days the Cardoma Cafe for looking for another band to manage. <laughs> um, yeah, hand a business card over and say, "Would you like? Would you wonder if you'd like me to look after you?" But but I'd also built enough. Yeah, by the my by the time I was about thirty, I'd actually stopped just thinking I was lucky. And I had enough self belief, but I, you have to stop and and look at yourself and have a chat. You know, you've yeah. got to. You've got to and it's not easy to sit there and say, "Well, did, yeah, how, how am I going?" Because yeah. no one else is really going to know. Because you're the you guys are the only ones that know what your secret rooms are. Yeah. Now, so by the by that stage, I I was in that process of saying, "Well, I'm, there's another place for me to go." Yeah. But everything was about collaboration. Bullshit here, but relationships are everything, Joe. Yeah. You know, I, I think the world. If, every, if we all understood that you've got to have knowledge and, and you've, you've got to have what I call chutzpah, you've got to have the front, but barely 50% of your life is that. Yeah. The other 50% of how you get there is by having knowledge. When I worked out that 
um, the Arias, your first year of the Arias, and uh, when your eldest daughter was born, I just thought that's huge. Like mm. that that is a that is a mental toll on a man and on a family, and I just think that's in- incredible. Like, yeah, but you you know you was it was it taxing at the time? Do you remember that year? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, when I say taxing, there's not much about my journey that I have any regret about. Mm. And I don't look back Good. at all and go, oh, that was a terrible time because there, there were terrible times. Yeah. Um, and, and they – but they, those things have to be overcome. And, and if you get caught being too overly philosophical about it, mm. so it just – I mean, that's just – the RE Awards and George at the same time is just one of – Thousands of things, <laughs> but 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 did I get to the netball games? Yes, I fucking did. Um, and and you know, I, I whatever my beloved daughters, um, I cared deeply about. Yeah, them, but they have to put up with me. <laughs> I do. I'm I'm not going to be a different person there to what I might be in the middle yeah. of that world. And mm. when you're growing up, which is what I still do, I, 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 you, know, you still, we all have to evolve and grow all the time because yeah. that's part of the joy. Yeah. Um, along the way, you start taking your children with you on the, <laughs> on the journey. And I'm sure there's great perks. I'm sure they loved no. you know, they you love know what, what the you first, do. No, yeah, well, yes and no. They, I, I used to take them to gigs and they'd fall asleep under the ca- under the <laughs> desk. But I remember George. I said to you, so "What would you What would you really like to go and see? Which 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 Which?" Are, and I'm hoping for you know yeah. something really musical, right? <laughs> and you know, what, you know, what I had to take her to. What did you take? He her? probably he probably knows. Well, I had to take her to Kylie Minogue. Oh! <laughs> and and I, I, I add, not not Kylie Minogue of the sophisticated English, you know, feathers and bows. This was the very early days of I should be so lucky. Cocktail dresses yeah. fucking. <laughs> it was not. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and we're still. You are a good dad. Yeah, yeah. That's taking one for the team. Worse, worse still, she fell asleep. Oh well, look. I, I obviously know your daughters, but I think they're both incredibly proud of you, which I think is ah, oh, look, and, and me of them. But look, it's it's you know, you know the, the the genuine part of this is I don't do this sort of chatting about what I did. I mean, you don't know much about what I do because I, it's not something that needs like I'm I'm not remotely interested in having the fame thing that goes with it all. You carry a big stick. <laughs> <laughs> and all the people that need to know know when to part ways while I turn up and lose it on people. So, Peter, you have your own podcast. And you told me before that you were going to write a book and then someone said, do a podcast, so much easier. It was. And it was. <laughs> but it's time to stop for me now. No, well, so you've done 12 it's, episodes. It's very hard it's very, and it's emotionally very draining. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this, I, I very, very happily um, had 12 Dear friends, people I've grown up with through the business, and and really it, the the interviews tell the, the fabric story of yeah. all of our lives from the early seventies, pretty much till now. And there there is no there is no written record of that journey that we all took. So it's been, yeah. been quite it, to talk not about yourself, but about everything that went on. Yeah, everything. That's amazing. What um, what's it called, and how can people find it? Uh, it's called From the Inside. Uh, it's a story about the inside story about people's lives, and it's on Podcast One. Podcast which One, was, is, which is an Austereo something or other. <laughs> <laughs> we'll include the link online yeah. on it's our fantastic. multiple different channels for everyone out there. I apologise to everybody for the swearing <laughs> that goes on in those particular no, programs. Oh, and we're not averse to the old swear word here. Um, well, Peter, thank you so much. This has been, yeah, one of my favourite podcasts that we've recorded. I, Fascinating. I'm, my privilege to have been sitting chatting to you too. No. You're far too enthusiastic about the music. <laughs> <laughs> so up, many questions. Get over it now. We're, we're so young. Uh, 
Get over it. I love it. It's not rock and roll. Get yeah, over yeah. it. Uh, well, and thank you guys for listening. Um, our subscribers are growing week on week. It's yeah. just amazing. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, if you want to follow us, uh, if you've got any suggestions on who you think we should be speaking to, any questions we should be asking, hit us up. You can uh, reach Jai. He's at, at Jai Smith or at Double Star Co. And I'm at Ms. Darlinghurst on social media. Um, Jai's told me that we have a YouTube channel. I didn't even know we had a YouTube yeah. channel. What? 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 Is it YouTube. called Maker and Creator? Yep. Just look up Maker and Creator. Okay. Maker and Creator, but you can also obviously find us on iTunes, which is probably iTunes. where you're listening to us. Android user, it's Stitcher, TuneIn, and we're currently in talks with Spotify. Okay. Fantastic. I love it. Um, well, that's it from us for now. We'll be back ne- next episode. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Peter. An empire you've got, you lot. <laughs> <laughs>